This is a presentation of the Trine Broadcasting Network, part of the Center for Sports Studies at Trine University. Learn more at trine.edu. Hello, I'm James Tu, Senior Director of Content and Communications at Trine University, and I want to welcome you to Faculty Focus. This podcast features interviews with Trine University faculty members about their current research and their insights on issues impacting us all today. My guest today is Dr. Amanda Malafite, Chair and Associate Professor in Trine University's Maqueda Department of Chemical and Bioprocess Engineering. We're going to talk about women in engineering and about Amanda's work in the pharmaceutical industry. Thank you, Amanda, for joining me today. Thank you for having me, James. So this year, Trine University is celebrating 100 years of women in engineering. Uh, it's been exactly a century since Florence Kramer Bratton earned her civil engineering degree from what was then Tri-State College. What originally attracted you to engineering as a profession? Well, I really had no idea what chemical engineering was, uh, but I knew that I enjoyed chemistry and math, so it seemed like a good guess. Now, I know that engineering degrees, including chemical engineering, are extremely versatile degrees. There's so much that you can do with an engineering degree. I mean, we teach students how to be better problem solvers, and you can really apply that to almost any profession. Um, With only four years of education, you can get a well-paying job uh, in a multitude of different industries. When you arrived at Tri-State as a student, then did you come in already knowing you wanted to do engineering at that point, or was that something that developed after you got here? Yeah, I picked chemical engineering first, and then I picked trying. So you were probably about in high school then when you decided you wanted to do chemical engineering. Again, was that just you kind of researched and saw that combination of the stuff that you yeah. loved or what else? Attracted well, actually, you so Tri-State's chemical engineering program um, has long had an outreach project that brings students back to their high schools to talk about chemical engineering. And when I was a high schooler student, we had two of our former students that were going here for chemical engineering. So they came back and talked to my AP chemistry class about what chemical engineering was and why someone might wanna pursue it. Um, And so that's really where I first learned about it and also about Tri-State. What was it they said that really made you think, wow, I would like to be an engineer? I think it was just the the combination of the chemistry and the math. And it wasn't necessarily uh, a research-based job where when I thought of chemistry, I thought I would be, you know, in a lab um, doing research. The, the chemical engineering job kind of sounded a little more exciting to me because you can be like out on a plant floor in, ma- in manufacturing, right, in interacting with a bunch of different people and you're kind of on the very downstream side of the manufacturing process. I mean, you're there like right before it gets sent out to the public. And what was it they said that made you want to come to Tri-State? Well, I just really, I mean, they told me what Tri-State was. Other than that, I really had no idea that it even existed. Um, So then I came here for a visit uh, and I really liked the small school atmosphere. I mean, when I came to visit, I was able to meet and talk with faculty in the chemical engineering program. um, And I liked that ability to interact. I was trying to decide between a big school um, and a small school. And when I I visited a larger school, right, I just went on this big tour and they kind of just showed you around, but you really didn't get to meet like the people in your program. Um, So this just felt like a more comfortable environment for me. Um, And also I knew I wanted to be a student athlete. So I ran cross country and track all four years when I was a student here. 
Um, and so ultimately I chose trying because there are very few small schools that also have a strong chemical engineering program. What kind of challenges did you encounter as a female engineering student? I think overall, I had a really positive experience. Um, when I was a student here, I think the ratio was about five guys to every one female at Tryon University. Um, and within engineering, that ratio was even higher. Um, so I was definitely outnumbered. I think maybe the biggest difficulty was trying to find right study partners and people to work on homework with um, that didn't try to like ask me out on dates. Um, but despite that, I never really felt like discriminated against because I was a female or like I had any extra hurdles to, to overcome in terms of my education. Who were your mentors as a student female engineer? Well, I think first off, my parents were definitely like my role models growing up. I mean, my dad was a high school chemistry teacher. My mom was in the science field as an industrial hygienist and then later a microbiologist. Uh, science was pretty much in my blood. Um, I mean, not many kids, I think, can say they had periodic table placemats at their kitchen table, but we did growing up and we learned to memorize them early. I think when I was at Tri-State, there weren't really very many uh, female faculty um, within engineering. I don't recall any, and I think there was one in the chemistry department. So I didn't really have any, any women professors within the science classes that I took. But starting that summer... After my freshman year, I had an internship opportunity with Pfizer out of Kalamazoo, um, and I was paired as my, I guess, boss um, with a, a female chemical engineer. Her name was Molly, and she was a really great leader, um, and she was really a successful engineer, um, and she helped mentor me during my internships and then even later uh, and beyond. So I, I think she was the first kind of chemical engineering uh, mentor that I had that I looked up to in her accomplishments. Once you graduated, you actually began working at Pfizer as a manufacturing engineer. Um, what kind of challenges did you encounter as a woman in engineering when your career began? So I think the biggest challenge uh, out as a new student and heading into manufacturing was really just the age differences that I experienced. I was a 21-year-old kid. Um, and when you went out into manufacturing at that time, right, we had a lot of operators out on the manufacturing floor, the ones that are like turning the valves and adding the solvents and the reactants into the tanks and controlling the temperatures, right? They're, they're all in their 50s and they had been doing their job for 30 plus years. So in comes this young 21-year-old chemical engineer and, and I start asking them questions and asking them to explain what they're doing and, you know, listening to their ideas, but also trying to give them some ideas of my own on how to improve the process. And I think, you know, with that age difference, it was a really difficult conversation to navigate. I learned if you can do it correctly, um, then you can gain a lot of respect um, from both angles. Not only are they 30-year-old, but they're, I would guess, men. Yes. <laughs> so again, was that, was there any kind of, I don't know, macho thing about trying to take, them trying to take direction from a 30 years younger, fresh out of college woman, or did they, did they seem to handle that pretty well? I think they seemed to handle it pretty well. I wasn't kind of the first uh, female in that position, so I wasn't like blazing the, the trail uh, for a bunch of other people. There were those that had done it before me, um, you know, and every so often I think you can get a few kind of like microaggression type comments or get put into a stereotype for being a female, but I feel like I didn't really have any major concerns 
around sexual harassment or anything in the workplace. How do you think the engineering profession is different now than it was when you were, coming again, coming out of college as this uh, new graduate engineer? Well, I think now, kind of everywhere, there's so much more awareness surrounding um, harassment and on issues related to promoting diversity within corporations um, that honestly, I feel like there's little to no tolerance for those type of issues in today's workforce where a lot of people could get by by doing those things in the past. And I think while there's still a long way to go for kind of more universal accommodations, many larger companies are putting together benefit packages that include options for right longer maternity leave or even parental leave uh, for employees. Um, and a lot of companies offer more flexibility for parents to adjust their working hours or occasionally uh, work from home. I think some issues that still exist are there's a lot of kind of maybe unconscious bias and expectations for women to behave differently than men when it comes to looking for promotions and leadership. Um, there was a study done by Harvard Business where it showed that both um, men and even women are more likely to hire or promote someone um, if their name is male versus female, even if they have the same identical qualifications. And I think in general, women tend to lack the same level of confidence as men when it comes to branching out or trying new things. So I think it's really important to help women understand where these issues exist and kind of how to best stand up for and advocate for themselves. I don't know if you know this off the top of your head, but a little over 15 years ago since you were the new uh, student graduate, are there more uh, women engineers out there now than there were at that time? How is how has that number changed? Yes, I know that the number of women in engineering is continually growing. I don't think the number of women in leadership positions is growing at that same rate. Now, even though the number is growing, I know I've read that it is a, still a concern that uh, women are not well represented in STEM fields in general, in engineering as well. What um, What's the profession doing to, to encourage more women to enter the field? I think a lot of companies and universities are really focusing on kind of continuing and improving their STEM outreach to even middle school students and sometimes high school students. I think that's really important. Um, encouraging girls to fall in love with science and math at an early age really helps them get a leg up on their degree path. And I think also showing women that it's possible to have careers as well as families is really important. Uh, providing ideas on how to balance work life and looking for companies that will support that um, is really necessary. I know over the summer I was chatting with one of our recent alumni uh, and she mentioned that she had started a, a coffee chat with other women in her company to kind of create a support and mentorship group. And I think those are, are really important and growing within organizations. I know other companies also have similar groups. Sometimes they call them uh, like lean-in circles, um, but just areas for um, women to support each other and help um, give each other advice as they navigate their career. You know, a huge issue right now is kind of personal to me um, is the, the lack of reliable childcare. And I think this is honestly where we're taking a step backwards. I mean, more often than not, if women feel like they're being forced to choose between the two, they'll choose family. 
I read an article on NPR about because of the pandemic, there's fewer women in the workforce um, than before the pandemic, and they're dropping out uh, at a rate almost four times that of men. So I think that's really an issue that's going to have to be resolved for us to continue to see more women advance in leadership positions within their companies. Just from your perspective as a faculty member here as well, how has the trying student body changed since, again, you were kind of the, seemed like you were the only uh, female engineering student? Are there, are we seeing more women in those fields and, you know, kind of how are they uh, acclimating and uh, getting through to their careers? Yeah. I mean, the university as a whole has more women. I don't know the exact ratio, but I think it's, I mean, it's much better than the five to one when I was a student. I mean, our growth in the health sciences department has really helped that. Um, Within engineering, the addition of the biomedical engineering program has has helped our women um, in engineering. I think they're actually at about 50% women in their program. Chemical engineering is at about 30%, and we're the second highest um, in terms of women in our program. So um, I think those are the areas where where we have strengths in women in engineering. I know, or within engineering, we have Society of Women Engineers. I know the business program has women in business. Um, So we also have um, professional organizations that we have student chapters from on campus. You said there weren't any really female engineering faculty when you were here. We have faculty uh, like you and um, uh, Dr. Matofsky and Dr. Gagnon, I think, and mm-hmm. DET, and I'm sure there's others I'm forgetting, yeah. but you're able to serve as mentors as well. Yeah, I think right now we have seven uh, female faculty members within the Allen School of Engineering and Computing. So just being a female voice in front of the classroom, I think, is helpful to give our students the confidence that they can succeed in this degree. I think three of our um, department chairs are women. Um, we have Professor Jagodinsky and then um, Dr. Gershutz and I, so I think that's helpful as well. Kind of moving ahead a little bit, too, you um, had mentioned to me you did graduate research in drug development for DNA and RNA-based therapeutics. Um, mm-hmm. Can you describe in layman's terms exactly what that is for? I mean, I, I know offhand what DNA is and RNA, but maybe for, for those out, out there who aren't as... Uh, familiar with those terms and, and what how that works. Yeah, so the DNA is kind of, right, your instructions inside your cell that tell them what to do when and how much. Um, and then your RNA is kind of your, your messenger tool that, that takes the information that's stored within the DNA and, and brings it out into the cells and gets the action to happen. And so when we're looking at At DNA and RNA therapeutics, I mean, it really is a type of genetic engineering, but you're looking at proteins inside the cell that can be harmful or helpful and controlling those levels to better treat diseases. And so what are some practical applications of that? Yeah, so the area that I worked in for RNA therapeutics was with short interfering RNA. So they were small pieces of RNA um, that would turn off the, the manufacturing of specific proteins. So if you had a protein in your cell that was being made too much um, or causing a certain type of disease, you could turn it off and prevent it from being made inside 
inside certain cells. The other use of that, which is really how the COVID vaccine works, is through um, messenger RNA, adding that into cells and getting cells to make new proteins, proteins that they wouldn't naturally have made on their own um, and getting them to to make them either so that your immune system can recognize them um, and be prepared to to fight diseases or to help with um, other genetic diseases that maybe have deficiencies in certain types of production. You mentioned the COVID vaccine, which is a big, you know, in current news, but I think I've also read that this kind of technology has really been out there for some 20 years or more. What are some other um, applications that maybe people would be aware of that that already use that type of technology? Yeah, I know um, one of the easiest ones um, is the RNA therapeutics are being used to treat different types of ocular diseases, just really because your drug has easy access um, into your eyes. I think one of the hardest challenges with RNA and nucleic acid therapeutics is getting them to where they need to be within the body. Um, they're naturally kind of filtered out by the kidneys on their own. So any type of kidney disease is, is also, they have certain types of kidney diseases that can be treated with RNA therapeutics just because that's naturally where they go. So it's an easy spot to get to. Why did you eventually decide to return to trying to teach? Well, I really liked my career at Pfizer in pharmaceuticals. I mean, I liked working it in, in manufacturing. I felt like it was a challenging job. There were a lot of different things to do on a day-to-day basis, but also it was a 24-7 manufacturing facility. So, I mean, you can get phone calls at 3 a.m. asking you, you know, something's wrong, please help us come fix it. Um, and so the, the hours weren't as appealing to me. Um, at the same time, I was assistant coaching with high school cross country and track programs. Um, and I really enjoyed working with kids and helping them work to achieve their goals. And so I thought, well, maybe a, a teaching type career would maybe be a better, a better fit for me. Um, but I still loved chemical engineering. So I, I kind of decided maybe to go a teaching route more towards, towards chemical engineering, where I can, can use that, that coaching um, to help right, chemical engineering students kind of grow and help them um, get the job that they want. So again, you're kind of able to coach or mentor in the role you have as well. Yeah, I think, you know, that's a fun, fun opportunity to me because that one-on-one interaction is, is a lot more influential than just standing, you know, in front of a classroom Um, And so we have uh, undergraduate research opportunities within our program. So that kind of allows me to have a more one-on-one approach with some of my students and helping them work in the lab um, and help them get get jobs that they want to have. I think last week I had four of our seniors, three of them were women, come into my office to discuss recent job offers that they had and, and talk to me about advice and things to look for in benefits packages or how to proceed with a salary negotiation. So I think... Um, those kinds of things are are really helpful. Just being able to to impact students and watch them grow from coming out of high school to really becoming adults and going out and working in the world. Now kind of going back to your work at Pfizer, we, re- we really haven't talked directly about that much. Um, I know your title was a manufacturing engineer for active pharmaceutical ingredients. Uh, Can you explain maybe a little bit about what that is and what you did in that position? 
Yeah, so active pharmaceutical ingredients, uh, we kind of abbreviate them as APIs, but they're the main ingredient in the medicine that does its job. So some of the processes that I oversaw included the making of like hydrocortisone. So it's the main ingredient in like anti-itch creams for poison ivy or bug bites. Um, and then also uh, methylprednisolone, which um, is another drug that's used to treat kind of more serious allergic reactions. Um, so the drugs that we manufactured were all uh, steroid-based classes of drugs, and they typically required several different um, organic chemistry conversion reactions to get to the, the final molecule that we needed. Um, so we, we manufactured all of these APIs in, in large tanks that could turn out like around 500 kilograms a batch. So we just made them in really large scale. My role within that was kind of twofold. The first was to oversee the process itself. Um, and so this included looking for ways of improving the production, either through ways of increasing yield or decreasing impurities. Um, also looking at how we made it and if we could make it in a way that was safer um, to the people that were working out on the floor. In any cases where we had batches that didn't quite turn out the way we expected, we had to do right investigations and figure out what went wrong and, and look at what we could do to fix it to prevent those changes from happening again. Um, the other thing that I did was working in cleaning validation. So we would um, produce a lot of different medicines in the same equipment. So it was really important to ensure every time we made a new drug that we didn't have any of the old drug left in the tank. So looking at what are different types of solvents that are better for cleaning, what are areas that are hard to clean, is there certain equipment that we can purchase that's a little bit more cleanable, um, and just ways of ensuring that there was no contamination between different medicines. The last Trine magazine we did focused on some different uh, alumni who worked at Pfizer. And one common theme I got from talking to each of them was the idea that, that they had a sense that the things they were making were going to be used by their family and friends. And it, you know, hydrocortisone is something a lot of us use when we get a bug mm -hmm. bite or whatever. So did you kind of have that same feeling as well when you were working on the medications that, you know, hey, this is something that in the end may affect me or somebody I love, maybe help make their life better. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the common theme um, maybe in my career path was that I just wanted to help people, you know, and I, I looked at, you know, a long time ago, right. Did I want to become a doctor? Um, and I thought, no, that's way too much school. I would never want to do that. But then also I, I never really thought that I would like that kind of whole operation room atmosphere, and so, yeah, working at Pfizer was a way to know that I could, you know, positively impact people's lives um, by helping make, you know, important medicines. Now, what process does a medication go through from, you know, when initially somebody discovers something or, or even researching how to fight a disease or something in the lab to the point where it gets sent out to the general public? Yeah, it can be a long, a long process. So usually the first phase is kind of the preliminary research phase. So that's kind of like what I did in graduate school. You know, it kind of happens in the research level in terms of discovering potential methods for treating diseases um, and then kind of blends in with the, the corporate research and development, which looks at right possible drugs that would target that method. Um, and that process can take, you know, quite a bit of time to screen out, you know, of all these different options, what might be the best candidate 
then once you pick a molecule that might be a good drug, um, then you get into short-term and long-term animal testing. So you start with the animals first. Um, and these usually kind of verify that the drug is working the way that you think it should. Um, and also it's an opportunity to look for long-term side effects um, in, in animals. And then after that, is when you get into the, the phase one, the phase two, the phase three clinical trials. So those trials really just look at, again, potential side effects in humans, what's the appropriate dose level for humans, and then also the effectiveness in people. So once they have all of that information collected, right, then they fill out the new drug application with the FDA and they, they work for getting FDA approval from all the information that they've gathered from their or clinical trials. And so then, after all that, then the drug is able to be legally marketed, you know, and you can start mass producing it. So that entire process can take, right, 10 years on average, but, right, it could take 30 years um, to get, you know, from the first idea of a possible drug to developing it and being able to market it. It can be a long process. And I think kind of something that was cool for me was that in my career, right, I had the opportunity to work kind of at both the beginning, the very, very beginning, and at the very, very end of that process. Was that in the manufacturing engineer position or one of the others, or, or how did uh, how did yeah. you get involved in those those phases of it? So, so for me, I was just in like the graduate school research, right, working okay. in the lab, right, trying to figure out, you know, what are possible ways that we can use to treat genetic diseases. Um, and then from the right, the mass production, which I which I did at Pfizer in terms of making the drug in large marketable quantities. What are some things that the general public might not know about how medicines are produced? I think the hardest one is, and you hear a lot about how expensive medicines are, um, and I think a lot of people maybe don't realize that right even before you first hear about a drug, right? It could be, have been in development for 20 plus years of people doing research, um, putting in money to make sure that it's, it's hopefully not going to have any harmful side effects, um, to figure out exactly how it's working. So we know exactly what it does, um, and what things to look out for. Um, and so there's a lot of cost that that's involved in that research process that, really contributes to the overall cost of the drug. What are some current trends in therapeutics? Yeah, so some of the things that I've seen um, either through talking with my students who have internships or looking at kind of uh, some pharmaceutical articles and, and reading journals um, is seeing that increase in, in big data and using artificial intelligence. So we get so much more data on our processes than we ever did before. I mean, everything has, you know, digital data acquisition and we can get temperatures, we can get pressures, we can get concentrations right at a million different time points. And right, how do we use all that information to draw conclusions about how to improve our process? Um, and so I think that's a big area of study and, and future trends. We're seeing a lot of growth in precision manufacturing or personalized medicine. So usually, right, historically, people would make drugs that could treat, right, a vast amount of people. But what we're finding out now is that some of the best and most effective drugs are highly specific to certain types of people or people with certain genetic traits. Um, and so a lot of companies are really tailoring their drugs 
to be more specific towards particular targets or maybe even individual people. Um, and because of that, because um, kind of, I guess, the the amount that they need of each drug is, is going down because each of those drugs are so specialized. I mean, that's where genetic therapeutics falls in. These are very specialized drugs to treat people with certain sequences of DNA um, that they're developing more of a, a modular type manufacturing design. So looking at kind of doing a bunch of smaller processes instead of one big, huge process just to kind of allow for more flexibility in equipment. Just trying to visualize that, how would that work then? How do you break up a process like that? Yeah, so right, instead of doing a process in like a big 2,000 gallon reactor, right, you're doing a bunch of smaller processes in maybe like a 100 gallon reactor um, that you can, right, make multiple different things. Um, Also, a lot more of our therapeutics are based off of living organisms. So we might use products that bacteria make, products that certain cells make, um, things like monoclonal antibodies, right, are, are made from cells. And so there's a huge sterility requirement in the manufacturing of these drugs because we don't use as much uh, solvents to, to kill things off. And so there's a lot more single-use reactors, right? You have tanks and then you put a disposable, basically like a disposable bag inside, right? And you run your process. And then when you're done, right, you trash it, you get a new one. um, And it allows for a lot quicker changeover and you don't have to deal with those um, cleaning validation issues um, as much. Once again, I'd like to thank Amanda Malafite for joining me today for Faculty Focus. Be sure to check back for new episodes as Trine faculty members talk about their research interests and the issues of the day. Thanks for listening to this presentation of the Trine Broadcasting Network, part of the Center for Sports Studies at Trine University. Learn more at trine.edu.